Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Dallas, Texas at the 25th World Travel and Tourism Council Global Summit right here in the heart of Texas and taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. And if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it throughout the air or throughout the show. And uh, speaking of that, you can also reach me on Twitter. My handle is at Peter S. Greenberg or Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. So much to talk about at this 25th anniversary WTTC. For those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you know we broadcast every year from the WTTC. This is only the third time in the uh, 25 years of the uh, organization that it's the actual summit's been held in the United States. Last year was in Madrid. The year before that was Hainan Island in China. The year before that was Abu Dhabi. It's always a fascinating sort of a two-day summit of the world leaders in travel. We're talking the CEOs of airlines, hotels, cruise lines, rental car companies, every facet you can think of. And they're here talking about stuff that I learned from and then share with you about the trends in travel that are good, bad, and yes, sometimes even ugly 
and what it means on the world stage. After all, the numbers are staggering. It is the largest industry in the world, travel and tourism. It's responsible for nearly 10% of global GDP, and in some countries, it's actually higher than that. It's one out of every 10 jobs. There are about 93 countries out there that totally depend on travel and tourism, and if they didn't have it, they'd have to fold up the tents. I mean, we're talking about some serious and staggering numbers. And yet, having said that, we have incidents like Brussels, Paris, Istanbul, Ankara, that basically upset the chain, that disrupt uh, what should be uh, people's will and eagerness and enthusiasm to travel, see the world, to learn, to exchange with others. And uh, it's an interesting response to see how the travel industry itself adjusts uh, to the changing times. Or maybe the times aren't changing at all, they're just happening more frequently. What are they going to do about it? That's just one of the disruptions. There are other disruptions caused by consolidations and mergers. We just saw earlier this week uh, the conclusion of at least the beginning, how about that? The conclusion of the beginning, I wasn't making a mistake, of the acquisition of Virgin America by Alaska Airlines for about $2.6 billion. What will that mean? Uh, where will it go? Because the combined airline will become the fifth largest airline in the United States. And before you get too excited, there are only about five airlines in the United States now. Uh, you know, we've gone from eight airlines competing for 88% of the market share to four airlines, maybe now five, that own it. And uh, other than Frontier and Southwest, well, Southwest one of the five now, other than Frontier and Allegiant and a few others, maybe Spirit, uh, I think we've seen the end of the mergers and consolidations. Can that at, ever, at any time be helpful to consumers? And, and my argument is no, uh, because the airlines are practicing what they call capacity discipline. That's another term for shrinking. And that's why every plane you're on is full. So you're seeing fewer flights. Uh, with occasionally more seats on the plane, but not available seats, and airfares have nowhere to go but up. I mean, think of the statistic. In 2014, there were 29 million more people who traveled than in 2000. Pretty impressive, right? Now get ready for this. In the same period of time, the airlines removed 156 million seats. So that, coupled with lower fuel prices, ancillary fees, means the airlines are making more money now than they've ever done in their history. So the real question is not whether or not they're having a windfall. The real question is, what are they going to do with it? Some airlines are investing in, in new aircraft, new systems. They're not investing in better food, and they're not investing in, in, in more comfortable seats, especially in the back of the plane. All they're doing is trying to uh, reduce pitch size, reduce, reduce width. And, uh, you know, I like to say that there's first class, coach class, and last class. And uh, a lot of us are finding ourselves right now in the back of the plane. Uh, interesting stuff there. And then, in the meantime, speaking of other disruption, there are airlines outside the United States that are coming in and picking up markets that are underserved. Uh, those are the markets that are underserved domestically. Think of the, the markets like uh, Cincinnati, Ontario, California, uh, Kansas City, Milwaukee, Memphis. You can go on. That have seen dramatic drops in service in departures and arrivals. And, you know, there's a, there's a uh, uh, it's, it's a ripple effect because you don't have airlift, you don't have business. It's not just whether or not the newsstand at the airport can sell newspapers. It's you don't have business because the businesses who are in those cities can't move their executives. And you've reached the tipping point. And then it comes down to price. And this is where all common sense goes out the window. It, you, can't, you can't look at this in a, in, a, in a sensible way. It is now cheaper to fly from Omaha to Oman 
than it is to fly from New York to Boston. Now, the New York to Boston flight, last time I looked, has, a, has an actual airtime, in the airtime, of 38 minutes. Of course, since you're going from LaGuardia, you're on the ground for 38 hours. But the point is, it's a 38-minute flight. And it's more expensive in some cases than New York to Nairobi. This is making no sense at all. We're seeing airlines many of you have never heard of before, like Norwegian, Edelweiss, and others. Wow, have you heard of Wow? Coming in and using certain hub cities to, to create a network from cities that you would normally not think of when taking a long-haul flight. For example, you can now fly nonstop from Las Vegas to Zurich on an airline called Edelweiss. You can fly nonstop from New York to Bergen, Norway on Norwegian. You can fly nonstop from Los Angeles to Stockholm on Norwegian. And the fares are unbelievably low. Speaking of unbelievably low, you want the wow factor? Try wow. It's a brand new airline out of Iceland that is flying people from Los Angeles and San Francisco and many other destinations to Reykjavik. And their introductory fare was $99. And if you want to continue on to Europe through their hub in Reykjavik, tack on about another 135 bucks. So for under 300 bucks, by the way, these are round trips. Uh, you get to go to Europe. And some airlines are even doing nonstop service with stopover privileges, meaning you fly to Iceland on Iceland Air, the established long-term airline, and they give you two free nights at a hotel if you're going on with them to Europe. So all sorts of opportunities there. And yet, if you're living in Las Vegas, it may be more difficult to fly to Chicago. But you can fly to Zurich, and from Zurich, you get to go everywhere. So we're living in interesting times, and what's particularly interesting about this is for the first time in 40 years, the U.S. dollar is at an all-time most powerful place against so many foreign currencies that it's a great buyer's market for us if we want to go overseas. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm honored to be joined by an old friend of mine. We've traveled the world together. He has the distinguished position of being, I think, chairman of the of the airlines of the world. I, I can't keep count anymore. I mean, of course, I met him when he was doing Gulf Air and out of Bahrain. And now, of course, he's the CEO of Etihad, based in Abu Dhabi. But it's not just Etihad, is it? Pete, good to see you. It's a number of airlines. It's uh, Alitalia. It's, uh, we're a major shareholder. Jet Airways in India, Air Berlin in Germany, Air Serbia. <laughs> Air Seychelles. As I said, I can't keep count. <laughs> and uh, Virgin Australia. I mean, that's a big deal. Well, it's uh, an aviation group. We operate uh, but over it's se- not, but 700 it's not, aircraft. But it's not co-chairing. You actually have equity positions in these airlines. Well, one of the challenges of airlines, it's very difficult to get access to markets because of bilateral rules, foreign ownership. So by investing in these airlines, it's given the ability to integrate our networks, access to market. But on the flip side, we're able to tackle scale. So we're able to look at costs, we're able to purchase systems together, work with SAP, IBM. Just IT alone? IT, MRO, uh, part of training, a whole range of aspects we tackle as one. Wow. And Alitalia, to me, was, I would think, your most ambitious acquisition, if I can say, because my history with Alitalia meant that the words Alitalia, or the letters Alitalia, stood for all land in Tokyo, all luggage in Athens. 
You well, maybe, maybe, with me on that? maybe you and I come from different eras. <laughs> uh, but you know I started back in the airlines in 1975, right. and uh, then uh, used to fly to Australia, and sure. uh, it was one of the brands it in was. the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And Although the, I will tell you this. You know what they used to do with smoking and non-smoking in Alitalia? Smoking was on the left and non-smoking was on the right. <laughs> well, they weren't the only airline that did that in those I mean, days. On. So, uh, look, what's more important yeah. is that um, in investing uh, just over 12 months ago in Alitalia, uh, we went through extraordinary due diligence set very important condition precedents because in investing uh, we have 49% we wanted to win but and this you, is a brand that we uh, are, are turning and uh, and nobody thought you could do it well uh, I mean you thought you could do it but I'm saying the, 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 the world outside saying Alitalia was an airline that the, even the Italian government didn't even want to go near yeah but you know when you start doing your due diligence and looking at the DNA of the business yeah. and the DNA of the brand is strong the people of Alitalia are good they're passionate for the airline and it's like any organisation when you don't give them the training the tools the investment to win in our business that's like the IFE the interiors the catering and what we've done is rework the airline new brand new you made interiors IFE training and the people are ready for it so we're, we're very excited um, and it's still an Italian airline it is an Italian airline if you think of Italy when you think of Italy you think about service you think about style you think about fashion and that's what Alitalia should reflect and uh, next month we launch the new uniform of Alitalia now we're talking and okay. uh, that's really a, the final phase of at the reinvestment and, and the turn so you know from the livery to uh, the interiors to in-flight entertainment all the aircraft to have Wi-Fi, new lounges, new catering proposition, and now the uniform. So they have the ingredients to win. And in aviation, it's about safety, as you know. As importantly, when you're on board, it is about the service proposition. So I think when people travel Alitalia, they're going to be surprised and delighted. And the new uniforms? New, wow. But I can't <laughs> tell you because it hasn't been launched yet. <laughs> Very will, they, will they have sweaters around their necks? Will they, will they, hello? Will they be doing that? Very, very flaring. Look, you'll have to come to the launch and you okay. can see for yourself. Okay. But in this world, you know, you and I talked about this once before and it, it's, it bears repeating. And, and at this conference today, even uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker talked about this, the concept of preclearance. I mean, it's a concept that is so brilliant and it's been around since 1952 and there's still people out there who think it's not a good idea. How could it not be a good idea? Look, it's a great idea. We have preclearance in Abu Dhabi. And uh, if you think, you know, post 9-11, obviously the focus, as one would expect worldwide, on screening people, profiling, and th that's a given. But for some people, it's quite an experience. So to have that in Abu Dhabi as a crossroad where you have people coming from the Middle East, from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you have U.S. customs officers who have real empathy for the region, it works. So from a service from the ability to turn people. It's better to turn them in Abu Dhabi for them to go back to India or Bangladesh. Sure. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. James, we were just left, last left off, we are talking about preclearance. The whole idea is 
you actually clear U.S. customs in the country that you're leaving from, and the same security protocols are in place. You're going to be at the airport anyway. Why wouldn't you do it then? And you get a head start on who's on the plane before they even get on the plane. Look, you know, the Department of Homeland Security have been outstanding in developing the program. It gives the guest on board the aircraft that reassurance that the profiling has been done before they arrive in the U.S. And then from a service perspective, you're actually at the curbside within 30 minutes. You know yourself, sometimes you walk into a U.S. airport after a long-haul flight, and it can be a one, one-and-a-half-hour wait in the queue. You don't walk in, you stumble in. Well, your words. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what is great, because we offer this, obviously, from Abu Dhabi yeah. into New York, into Chicago, into Washington, into San Francisco, L.A., I, and Dallas. I must say, I have friends of mine who are over in the Gulf, and they might be in Doha, they might be in Dubai, they'll make a, a, a separate point of leaving from Abu Dhabi because after an 11-hour flight, they don't want to wait two hours in the United States. They, first of all, their bags connect, they connect. I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, look, it's a great initiative, and uh, you would have seen recently that Homeland Security are also very keen to take it into, into Europe, which they're evaluating at the moment. Yes. So I think for for travelers, for inbound tourism to America. It also generates more traffic for people to have that confidence to um, know they're being, being cleared at the point of departure. And it is a very smooth entry once they arrive as a domestic customer. You know, one of the themes of this particular summit was only the third time in the history of the WTTC that's been in the United States. It's called Travel Beyond Boundaries. What are the boundaries that challenge you? Well, obviously, uh, what, you know, for any airline CEO in today's world, you know, security and safety is our number one priority. And with the, you know, tragic events we've had recently at um, Brussels Airport, it means the vigilance becomes, you know, far greater. So the ability to work with various authorities to ensure that, you know, we do have the proper passport checks, security controls, whether it's passenger cargo, whether it's catering, you know, all aspects of the chain. Whoever has access. That, that service an aircraft. And, um, you know, that is the number one focus and priority. And you, you mentioned that, but also isn't it just the airport itself before they ever get to the plane? I mean, you know, the knee-jerk reaction after 9-11 and again right after Brussels is, okay, let's expand the security perimeter around the airport. And then only people who have a valid boarding pass, we check the vehicles out there, we check the bags out there, no meters and greeters, just those passengers come in. From an efficiency standpoint, works for me, but at the same point, there's always that double-edged sword of at what point do you compromise, you know, hospitality for security or vice versa? Well, you know, obviously the focus for any airline operator is always going to be security first. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think travelers today also appreciate, in fact, seek that those proper security protocols are in place. Now, a couple of, uh, actually about a year and a half ago, I was over in Abu Dhabi and you said, I want to meet you tonight. You, you have to come over and see something. So you snuck me into this building. You called it, I believe, the Innovation Center. Am I right? Indeed. All right. And you said, okay, you can't tell anybody about this. Come look. And that was the residence. Correct. That was what you built in the front of the cabin of the A380, which is a basically a three-room residence that you sell as a, as a, as a ticket. Look, when we looked at the uh, 380, we had placed the order nearly uh, eight years ago. And at that time, we felt if we could do something in regard to design, and from an aviation point of view, it's about the seat count, the number of seats on the aircraft, it's the weight for range, uh, it's getting the design right to ensure you can bring that in premium, that privacy. And one of the first things in our work group, we said, why don't we do a penthouse? We started with a penthouse before it became <laughs> the residence. And we held focus groups in New York, in Abu Dhabi, in Sydney, in London. You need and a focus group to figure out that somebody would like say no to a penthouse? Well, it was more about yeah. what do you like and don't like about travel and what would you like to see in a cabin? And we have, in fact, 
film those focus groups and when you replay them and you see the end product you can see how you can see how much of that feedback we took from our regular travelers into producing but you know the, the great thing about the uh, the residents is that we're selling it it's uh, it's innovative what we we, we now you were selling it what about t- was it how much is it now it's six it's uh, on U.S. between New York and Abu Dhabi is about $45,000 U.S. For one or two? One or two. So listen, as I said to you many times before, if you're spending $45,000 for one on that plane, in that residence, you are a loser. You need a partner. Well, I'm sure you'd have a partner, but let me tell you. It's of in course. Fact, <laughs> it, it's, it's much more effective than taking a private jet. So you get the comfort of an A380. You don't have to make a stop if you do on a private right. jet. And it's a lot cheaper than a private jet. And you right. get a butler, you get your own shower, you get your own bedroom, and a menu that you design. And by the way, when they say menu that you design, I was on one of your flights once, and the guy said, would you like to have some breakfast? I said, okay. He said, do you have any eggs? He goes, what kind? I went, what do you mean, what kind? He goes, egg. He said, no, what kind of eggs? I said, okay. And would you, what would you like with the eggs? I said, uh, mushrooms? He said, what kind? I said, oh, stop. <laughs> but you actually stock that plane that way. Well, you know, we have chefs working on board the aircraft. They come out of five-star establishments. They're actually chefs who are trained as flight attendants. Correct. And they as come, opposed to flight attendants with a hat. Correct. And yeah. they come for two or three years. They come out of the kitchens. They fly. They go back to the kitchens. They bring their personality into the cabin. But that's innovation. If you go back to that innovation center, because, you know, we have the food and beverage managers. We have the nannies on board the aircraft. It's you, about you and I, I, know, I know about the nannies. I know. <laughs> My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Joining me now is, is an old buddy of mine. We've traveled all over the world together, in many cases, for these summits. Uh, going back, God, 15, 20 years at this point, He's the chairman of the Travel Corporation of America. He's also the vice chairman of the World Travel and Tourism Council. Brett Tolman, how are you, sir? Great. And you, Peter? I'm good. You know, we, we find ourselves, as the Chinese like to say, in interesting times. You know, it's one thing to look at the travel industry as we already know it is, as the essentially the largest industry in the world, one out of every, every 10 or 11 jobs, nearly 10% of global GDP. All those are very interesting figures to talk about, but most people listening to the show don't always relate to that in their daily lives. In fact, even though so much of it is related to their daily lives. And then you have something that happens like Brussels or Istanbul or, or Paris. And, you know, the immediate reaction from people is, of course, to stay home, to close, you know, basically circle the wagons and not go anywhere. We've been through this so many times before. You would think, like the Europeans before us and the Irish, especially in Northern Ireland, it's sort of like they get it. It's, it's almost, a, it, it sounds so cynical to say it, but it's almost part of the way of life these days. It's par- part of the cost, if you will, of doing business, terrorism. It is. And it's very unsettling. And it's very hard to convince people to travel. I was standing on the border of the Golan Heights last week with my family, looking out at one of the Syrian towns across. And Which you could easily see. Absolutely. And it was quiet. My wife wasn't particularly happy, but uh, it was a remarkable reminder that the world is an incredible place to see and experience, and sometimes what you read in the media or you think in your minds is very different to actually what's happening on the ground. You see what's happening in Tahir Square when you're looking at the news about Egypt, and then one or two blocks away, everyone's sitting calmly reading their newspapers I have to tell you, I personally experienced that. We broadcast this show from Tahrir Square. 
Uh, I was there right before it. I was there during it and right after it. The same thing happened. I was in Nairobi, not by design. I happened to land in Nairobi the morning of the shootout at the mall. And there I was covering it for CBS. And yes, we were dodging bullets and it was crazy. And five blocks away, people were leaving to go on their safari and go out to the Maasai Mara and everything was just fine. But images that are visual are very powerful. It, uh, certainly the worst four letter word that starts with F in the world of travel is fear. Um, and you know, no amount of public relations or press releases takes the place of on the ground experience. You just had it on the border with Syria and you came back alive. Right. Right. Well, certainly one message is to stay away from where you're traveling to, because obviously uh, you attract it. But, uh, <laughs> seriously. Only, it only took about three minutes and 26 seconds for the provocative message of Brett Tolman. Thank you, sir. You know I love you, though. I know, I know you do. But in all seriousness, what right. can you do? I mean, I go back to 9-11, and I think the travel industry did a very bad job after 9-11, because uh, you know, they, they went to focus groups. And the focus groups were asked a ridiculously stupid question because focus groups usually get asked ridiculously stupid questions to which there are only one answer and they're all set up right and the question was will you be traveling this year of course the result the resounding answer was no they forgot to ask the second question do you want to and people didn't think they could they wanted their security blanket they want they wanted their blankie they wanted somebody to tell them it's okay you can go and nobody did it, and, and, and the travel industry, and, and the economy of the United States, for that matter, and the world, suffered at least a six to nine month just period of nothingness, as everybody just basically shut the doors. Devastating. I think we've all learned a lot from there, and social media helps significantly. We're very careful in the first week or two post a tragic event like the ones you mentioned to be very sympathetic and supportive of the local communities that have had terrible losses, and then in time to start reassuring our travelers and encouraging them to reconsider not traveling and to provide insights on what's happening in the ground, photography, and so forth, to hopefully help them uh, convince themselves to not change their plans. Well, to put this in perspective, I mean, I can say you're the chairman of the Travel Corporation of America. Nobody really knows what that means. So these are many different companies that you own and manage across a wide spectrum of operations and experiences. So give me an idea. So we have about 30 companies. We operate in over 60 countries, so escorted tours and guided vacations like Trafalgar and Insight Vacations, river cruising such as Uniworld, luxury hotels around the world from London to Ireland to South Africa. And the thing is, it's almost a, a, a domino effect. If, if you have a regional problem, it all starts to fall apart, right? right? I mean, you have operations in Egypt, and, you know, I was out there with some of your people on the Nile, you know, with 44 boats in the water and only four that were operating. I mean, that was very sad. You know, it, from, a, from a buyer's market perspective, from a consumer perspective, it's a great time to go because you own the Nile. But it's not going to solve the problem if only one person goes. No. And what you say and your messaging, I think, is fantastic. It reinforces that it's not all bad and you can't listen to all the media. We had an amazing story just the other day of a 93-year-old calling us two days after Brussels saying he doesn't have the time to wait. So him and his 91-year-old wife want a book and want to come to Europe. But we are seeing change in terms of people staying away from France, they're staying away from Italy, but Spain, Portugal, Ireland, the, uh, the business is up significantly. You know, talking about that 91-year-old or that 93-year-old, the one five-letter word that bothers me the most, not just in the world of travel, in the world of life, is later. Every time you use that word in a sentence, you either don't do it as well or you don't do it at all. And so when people, even when people say goodbye and they say, I'll see you later, I said, uh-uh, you'll see me soon. Later doesn't compute. You know, because it means never, right? right? And every time 
you know, people say that word. They're, they are building in a situation that's going to be self-fulfilling in a negative way. And I just ask everyone to you know, be careful in their thinking. I apologize to your listeners if this upsets them, but living in the United States, as we both do, I live in L.A., you're on the other coast, we have approximately 12 shooting deaths a weekend. 100,000 people die in this country due to accidents in hospitals, and therefore the mathematical chance and probability of dying from a terrorist attack here or elsewhere in Europe is so mathematically small compared to staying at home. And therefore, you know, we need to be so careful about how we think and trying to be pragmatic. But as you said, that four-letter word fear is very hard to uh, overcome. I mean, I can think of probably 50 destinations right now that if most of my friends, who, by the way, I think are well-educated and, and experienced and sophisticated, if they heard I was going to any one of those 50 destinations, their immediate reaction would be, be careful, be safe. I drive on the San Diego freeway. There you go. Keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your can. My next guest, I, I never see him where I live. I see him where, well, actually, I only saw you once where you live. He's based in Barcelona. I saw him in Florida, and now he's here in Dallas. He's the chief executive officer, something that most Americans have never heard of called eDreams, or the website is Odigio? Uh, the website actually depends upon which country you are. So we have many different brands, but here in the U.S. Well, first, let be... me introduce you. It's Dana yeah. Dunn. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here and a pleasure always to see you. Yeah. So, yeah, so the company, actually, we have many different brands. So right. we're a conglomerate. We're kind of, let's say, in uh, Expedia, mostly European-based, right? Even though we cover 44 countries, the brands that would be, would be eDreams, would be Apodo, Travelink, um, Go Voyage, and Lilygo. And they're okay, mostly so by Europe. the way, no one in this country has ever heard of them. That's right. I That's know. right. But what's interesting is I happen to think they're a great alternative, especially if you're trying to book travel outside the United States, within other countries in Europe? Because you told me this once before. How many websites are you checking every day? I mean, what are you scanning? So we cover over 450 different airlines. and then Many of them you've never heard of, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. But if you're really out there to find the best fares, yeah. and also if you want to do it, if you also want to do it at the right time. So it's right. not just fares, but also leaving at the right time, landing at the right time, depending upon whether you want to have a stopover or not stopover. We actually check 9 billion different elements to put together itineraries per hour, nine billion per different. hour. Yeah, because what we can do is we have a unique technology that's proprietary to us, and we actually take for long distance travel, not short distance, but long distance travel. If you're really going kind of let's say ten hours plus, you're flying let's say from New York to Hong Kong. You know, some people don't mind a stopover, and they, what they can do is they can save let's say hundreds. And of you dollars. give them a stopover. We give them a stopover. Okay, so here's my question it. for you. Yep. I need to get from New York to Cape Town. Right Now, when I go on the normal websites of Expedia, Travelocity, Orbis, whatever, of course, it's based on price. So the cheapest price comes up first, and you see that you're taking a 72-hour flight because it's going in the completely opposite direction. You're making 18 stops, and basically, you know, the paramedics are waiting for you when you land. So. You don't do it that way. So we, we do, but we don't offer the 72-hour <laughs> stop. You. But what we do do is two things. One thing is if we have, because uh, again, we're the largest in flights. 
Um, other companies focus on different things. Booking.com is a great one in hotels, but we really focus on flights. And so we have algorithms that therefore just shorten it much more the, the time that you have, the total trip time, because we know from experience about what customers like and don't like. The second thing is, is right up on top, right where you see it, we have a little tab that you click on, a button, and it'll sort everything by shortest trip duration. Now right. I, I want to click that button every time. What are you talking about? <laughs> but that's not going to necessarily get me the, the best fare. It's not necessarily going to get you the best fare. But what we do is, again, what we do is unique is that we combine different airlines together to give you the best fare. So in your example of New York to Cape Town, you may fly from, we'll look at literally every flight that goes out of New York to every different destination. That will connect. And then, from, and then from that destination to another one. So we may do, let's say, New York to... Um, Rio, and then Rio on to Cape Town. Or we may do New York to London, and then London on there, and we'll change airlines. And so we'll literally find you the lowest, lowest possible price, if that's what you want. But if time is what you want, right, then there's something different that we'll offer you. But we can find, and on average, we'll save you between about 250 to $350 per person round trip versus going to the domestic big carrier, like it could be Lufthansa or, or British Airways sure. or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at the British Airways model, going from New York to Cape Town, no matter what time you get to London, you, you have to lay over for 12 or 14 hours because their flight to Cape Town only leaves at night. Exactly, exactly. And that's why we combine every different possible combination that's out there and then just present them very easily to customers and allow them to sort through that as well. Let's quickly talk yep. about in the wake of what happened in Brussels, and we even go back to Paris and Istanbul. Yep. We know that in this country, the, the bookings drop off almost immediately. People are saying, okay, I'm scared. I'm not going to go. What about in Europe? Yeah, in Europe, um, the same thing. Really? So, but so I would think that Europeans would be a little bit more experienced in this, would say, no, I get it, it's a way of life. Yeah, so I guess it's all relative, yeah. meaning, um, you know, you, it's very typical to see about a 20% drop-off in bookings from one day to the next. So, you know, it was the 13th of November that happened in Paris, the attack, and if you look at the 14th, kind of you get a 20% drop-off in bookings. The interesting thing is they come back quite quickly. Well, especially so in it France. Typically, yeah, and in France. So it, came, so it started staying at that kind of level for, let's say, a week. But between week one and week four, you get almost all of the benefit back. And then by week six, you're back at the same level again. So, it, so it's interesting. Travelers are very resilient, and they come back quite quickly to it. So and if unlike, you are, I, I don't want to say anything that sounds politically yeah. incorrect, but I've always said the best time as an experience to go somewhere is either after a natural disaster, act of civil unrest, or an act of political terrorism, because forgetting the rate, you're going to have an experience where you're not going to have a lot of crowds and people are going to be happy to see you. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. So and I'd just like to add one more is after a big major global sporting event like the Olympics. Because go the instead week after. of going, yeah, it go, go a couple weeks after. It's dead. They've got a lot of new hotel stock that, that they got to fill. Yeah, because they, they all build too many rooms. They always build too many rooms. They exactly. always do it. And, and, they don't, and because they're new, they don't have that local connections because right. nobody knows the brand so they're not filling them up after the olympics so if you really want to bargain hunt go actually absolutely after especially this year in God. brazil hello uh, this is your captain speaking there is absolutely no cause for alarm Joining me now is somebody I've known for a long time in various incarnations, I might add. 
but usually airlines, now airport. I knew him at United. I knew him at, at, Virgin, Air, at Virgin Australia. And now he's the, the CEO of DFW, a huge Metroplex airport here in Dallas that is getting bigger all the time. Sean Donahue, how are you, man? Hi, Peter. Great to see you. I mean, it, it's one thing to say you're in the airline business and know about the airlines and live it, right? Making that transition to an airport seems like it's easy, but it probably wasn't. Well, I, I was fortunate, Peter. In my career in the airline side, I worked at a lot of airports, so very familiar with airports. Oh, you loaded bags? And I loaded bags and uh, did all the, sorts the of things. Did we? All sorts of things in yeah. airports in my career. So you were a ramper. Well, I started as a clerk at United, ah. and but then I worked at O'Hare. Um, I worked in Boston, New York, Denver, Chicago a couple of times. So, so you couldn't keep a job. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, people kept getting tired of me, so yeah, they exactly. kept moving me on. So you understood the process at least. I did. But what was DFW that was particularly challenging to you? Well, when I was at Virgin Australia and I was recruited to come to DFW Airport, what really appealed to me was the fact that the, the focus of both mayors, the, the, the owner of DFW is Dallas and Fort Worth. So the mayors um, you know, have a lot to say about the airport. And they had a vision about how we could grow this airport to be more of an international, more of a global player. And having lived in Australia for three years, I gained a great appreciation of the importance of a global perspective. And that's what really appealed to me from a strategy perspective. And then from an operational perspective, you know, my, my predecessor, Jeff Fagan, had a great reputation, ran a great airport. So I knew I was coming into a, a good situation. Sure. I mean, you talk about global. If you take a look at airlift in this country, just domestically, it's shrinking. You know, there are cities that are really dying out there because the airlift is left, right? You take a look at Cincinnati or Memphis or, or Kansas City, Milwaukee, Ontario, California. I mean, right now, it's cheaper to fly from Omaha to Oman than it is to fly from Springfield to Syracuse. And, and I'm not making that up. So, and then you have the, the, the commuter flights that have always come in. And the thing is that Bottom line is you have, to, you have to figure out airlift here, too. Right. At the same time, you see all these new disruptor airlines, if you'll call them that, who have figured out ways to come in and offer service to cities that may not be well served. I mean, for example, there's you can go nonstop from Las Vegas to Zurich now, right, on, a, on an airline that right. nobody knows called Edelweiss, right? right? And you have Norwegian coming in, right? You've got the Gulf carriers here. They've come in from day one. I mean, they, they couldn't wait to come to Dallas, right? Correct. How much has your international long-haul traffic grown? I just met with uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, and they, they shared with me a fascinating chart. So in the last two years, out of the top 10 U.S. gateway airports, DFW has been the fastest-growing international airport at about 15 16%. And the other piece of that is we're really focused on making the customer experience great at our airport. And, and one of the things we're doing is the clearance through Customs and Immigrations, and we're using yeah. technology. So at the same time that our growth in international visitors has been up 15%, the time in clearing them has, has gone, gone down 44%. Now, and that's a great story. You know, there are certain things that they've done that I happen to be great, greatly supportive of, like, you know, global entry. Right. It's when the kiosks work. Right. Half those machines aren't working these days. I mean, it's crazy. But the concept is great. And when those machines work, boom, you're done. It's, right. Who wants to wait, you know, two hours after an 11-hour flight? That's great. But there are certain things that are not in your control, right? Like the TSA. Sure. I mean, you have to work around them and with them, right? Absolutely. You, here you have your hometown airline, you know, Doug Parker, chairman of American, claiming, get ready, guys, it's going to be horrendous this summer. 
How do you fix that? Well, we're working with the TSA in a, in a spirit of partnership. We're fortunate, Peter, that we have five terminals at DFW, and therefore we have 15 different security checkpoints. So unlike a lot of major airports where there's one or maybe two massive checkpoints, we're, at, we're actually able you to disperse the traffic. Yeah. That helps us. That yeah. really does help us. Now, having said that, you know, this summer is going to be tough. There's no question about it. Because of staffing cuts. I mean, right. they're, they're down 1,100 inspectors in their system right now, and they haven't replaced them. Right. And the volume, as you know, is going up. Absolutely. And, and one of the things we're trying to do at TSA, you know, PreCheck is a great program as well. Yeah. And there's not enough people. Is, well, see, there's pre-check. not enough people who have signed up for pre-check. And here's the problem. Then TSA wants to go into the retail business and have people sample it. And then they're in lines. They didn't even know why they're there. And instead of the guys screaming to take your shoes off, they're telling them to keep their shoes on. It's total confusion. You know, it's a little bit tough. The thing that I can't understand about TSA, forgetting the staffing, sure. is their shift change ideas, right? Why would you close? And this is not particular to DFW. It's like, why would you close pre-check at 7 in the morning and five in the afternoon. Wouldn't that be when you wanted to open, right. you know? Um, or why would you train your guys on the conveyor belt at seven in the morning and five in the afternoon? That's when you don't want to do that. Right. Because right. they're going to look at every bag for five minutes. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining me now, and he comes to the summit every year because he's one of the big guys at the WTTC. He's the chairman and the owner of Silver Sea Cruises, my good pal Manfredi Lefrividovideo. Thank you. Did I get it right? A big guy, why? You have a presence. Oh, because I have a presence, okay. Of course. (laughs) I mean, let's talk about the cruise industry because, you know, I was really stunned to find out recently, you know, that at a time when, you know, 1.2 billion people are going to cross an international border this year, only about 24 million people have taken a cruise. It's a really small fraction of the total economy, and yet some would argue that cruising, the cruising economy is still almost in its infancy in terms of where you can grow. Well, it's not, not where we can grow, where it is growing. If you look at all the orders which are being placed for new ships, which are always with more and more passengers, 6,000, 5,000 passengers each ship, that tells you the supply which is going to be there in the next, uh, next five, ten years. I mean, we're talking every, every uh, shipyard is at, is at full capacity. I think the number I was quoted was 57 new ships being built. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, probably now it was 51, now it's 57. Right. And then how many passengers? Now, your ships on Silver Sea do not have 5,000 passengers. No. You're, you're in the 1,000 range or 900 range. We're right? always there to take a little fraction of the growth, <laughs> but it's sufficiently good. Well, it's not even just about growth. It's, it's a different style. I mean, you, you, you're, you are smaller ships. You're more intimate. You're more upscale. Uh, you're, you're not disgorging 6,000 passengers on a pier. No, sure. I mean, uh, we cater to a smaller fraction of the population. The awareness of cruising brings awareness also for upscale cruising. All right, let's talk about that because the real, I guess, it's, it's not just a question, it could also be a challenge. Where are you not going now in terms of destinations that you want to go? Or where is your audience telling you they really have to go? I mean, we go pretty much everywhere. 
there are very few routes which are not being opened and uh, where we don't go. I mean, there is Northwest Passage, Northeast Passage, which are the two... In, up in Canada? Upper Canada and or Siberia. Yeah, and you're not it's, doing that yet? Upper Canada, we did it one year. There are always risks that the uh, sea will close, so you take a chance. And the uh, other side, which is the Northeast Passage, you need permits, and in Russia, sometimes it's difficult. All right. Uh, Africa? I think we go wherever you want to go, we go. There's some areas which you have local wars, you don't want to go, so we don't go. Of course. But I'm saying there are still opportunities in Africa of ports that most people haven't gone to yet along the oh, west yeah. coast I mean, of Africa. Most of people don't, do not know. Africa is not an exploited destination. Right. There's a lot to be discovered there. And at the same time, of course, the, the, the elephant in the room, if you will, is China. Uh, you, it's gone, as you and I have talked about before, from a destination business to a source business, right? It's, it's, it's now... It's gone from a tiny destination business yeah. to a potentially gigantic source business. Meaning local Chinese cruising from China. From China. I think that the most of them will be cruising around China. <clears throat> and then there will be a portion which will want to see the world on a cruise ship. And every cruise line, including yours, is... is Looking it, at it yeah. in, in one way or another. Or some, some cruise lines have actually built ships dedicated entirely just for the Chinese market. Yeah, they're starting. They're starting either to change them and convert them to a Chinese market. What we assume is the taste of the Chinese. And what do you think that is? It will depend, depend on the, the, the kind of ship. Upscale ships will mostly be quite the same. And the mass market will be quite different. In what way? Uh, they will have uh, massive casinos. They will have... Uh, Big spas, they will have uh, Retail. rooms dedicated. Retail. Hmm? Retail. Shops. They will have rooms dedicated to play, what's the card name? Well, Wong, I don't remember. Whatever the game is, yeah. Yeah, they, they play cards. All the family oh, gathers. Oh, Mahjong. Mahjong, yes. Mahjong, yes, uh, yes, of course. They all gather on holiday to play that game, and so that's going to be. There's going to be different dining options. You're going to have Chinese breakfast. You're going to have uh, all of these things. But you also, in addition to your upscale cruise line, you also have upscale expedition ships. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that, that to talk about Chinese, what they are looking for is iconic things. There's, I think what is uh, an interest for the Chinese is to touch as many countries as possible. So they want to think, to know, and to say that they have been in 100, 150 countries. So that's something which uh, excites them. And another one is to go to destinations where you cannot go. A few people have been, so the Arctic, the Antarctic. But then it will go to a more normal approach. You go on vacation not to say that you've been on vacation, but you go on vacation to enjoy your vacation. Well, to immerse yourself in a different culture, have a different experience. But first and foremost, yeah. they just want to come out of the gate running. They, just want to, they, they really want to just hit as many places as they can. Yeah, they want to hit the places and they want to go to iconic places and make a selfie that they've been there. A selfie? Yeah, a selfie. Oh, man, the selfies are driving me nuts. With the selfie stick. Unbelievable. No. Weapons of self-destruction. That's what yeah. I call them. Of selfie destruction. Of selfie destruction. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was just in Venice recently. And I renamed the Bridge of Sighs the Bridge of Thighs because everybody was thigh deep with selfies trying to get a shot of them with a gondola going over. And I'm amazed nobody fell into the water. I mean, well, it'd be fun once to see one falling into the oh, water. I, and I'm sure they will. That's the yeah. point. As long oh, as, it's, water, not, as, long as it's not us. Because nah. you fall into the water in Venice, you come out a different color. What do you think is the biggest challenge to the cruise industry right now? Um, temporary challenges. Yeah. 
The pretty challenges is, of course, geopolitics always. Um, you know, uh, you never know what's going to be the next threat, the next problem. So, but the world lives this way. We have always had, we will always have some moments of the hiccup, either it's geopolitical or maybe some uh, small economic recession. But the instances you grow of, through yeah. not a straight line, but through a, a zigzag line. And the instances, let's say, of piracy on the African coast, they've gone down now. It's all, almost unexistent. Right. Down Somaliland, the Strait of Aden, yeah, that's almost unexistent. Right. I mean, it's over, yeah. just about. Substantially over, yes. So the, the, the major... See, it was a big problem, it, and now it, it isn't. It is, because people addressed it. The navies got down there, and they got them. Yeah, they got them. Amazing. And, of course, one of your ships that I was just on the other night, the Silver Cloud, is now about to be repositioned as an expedition ship in the, Antar- in the Antarctic. Yeah, but that's a market which is growing at 9% a year. So we need to bring capacity in as fast as possible. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest is an old friend. We've been all around the world together, literally. And I first met him when he was the Minister of Tourism of Jordan. was instrumental in allowing us to have access to then Prince of Jordan, who now, of course, is the King of Jordan, King Abdullah II. And his name is Akhil Biltaji, who now is not the Minister of Tourism. He's got an even better job. He's the Mayor of Amman, Jordan. Nice to see you, Akhil. Great to see you, Peter, and uh, to be on your show. Uh, it's been a long time. It has been a long time, but you know what? You haven't aged a bit. You look as young today as you did when I first met you. You know, it's, and it's interesting, you know, when people think about the Minister of Tourism job of Jordan, or Egypt for that matter, or anywhere in that region, it's a tough job because people tend to paint with one, with one stroke, with one brush. Yeah, you have the best assets in the world, antiquities, uh, all this time. But the circumstances in the area are not helping at all. Egypt is suffering. Jordan is suffering. The, the whole region is suffering now. Israel is suffering. I hope we'll uh, get rid of those ISIS uh, very, very soon. And, yes. Uh, and we'll we'll is, get things back in order. And by the way, having said that, as far as I'm concerned, Amman is still very much in order. I would go tomorrow. In fact, you and I were talking earlier about me coming over. Uh, exactly, Peter. Uh, we, we are uh, the, the, the cool spot in, in, a, in a hot uh, region, uh, but sometimes you're not branding uh, it that way, are you? <laughs> sometimes you, you you have to, you know, the the theme here, uh, travel beyond boundaries. Is, That's WTTC, is, is, yes. right? Is is how to get there? That's what got me here. Actually, I was very interested in the in the topic and the the people. Uh, I haven't seen them for some time. You remember, I hosted the WTTC uh, back in Jordan, in year two thousand. I was there. Uh, King uh, Abdullah was uh, there uh, as a host as well. Yes. So um, brings me back to empower and uh, get some uh, good stuff from you guys and uh, energize myself and go back and uh, make the city uh, a great city, particularly this summer. We're counting on a, on a lot you know, of tourists. But you know, when I first went to Amman, and this goes back, what, 25 years ago, it was a sleepy place. It's not sleepy now. No. It's 4.2 million people now. When you uh, were the first, it was like 1.5 million. Exponential growth. 
Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. But uh, don't forget, we have, uh, I have 450,000 Syrian refugees who were waiting that, you know, they get back home. And uh, that's why we call them guests. We don't like to call them refugees uh, so they can expedite their return. But uh, it's, it's a big city, bustling, uh, 24 hours, uh, and you, you'll, you'll love it. Just come back. And, I do. Uh, I do. I mean, I, I had, and it's funny, talk about globalization. I mean, I had a great Chinese meal in Jordan. And you don't expect that, but there it was, right? In Amman. Uh, where was it? Blue Fig? Yeah. Is it still there? Yes. Oh, my God. What a great restaurant that is. I mean, so many things. And, and, and you guys go all night. It's, 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 it's a lot of fun. Right. It's uh, still there and uh, so many other places uh, as well. The Rainbow Street now uh, is, is the hot spot in, in Andaman. But downtown, uh, it's much cleaner, Peter. It's, uh, people are down there till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, um, uh, safe as ever, uh, clean. I'm uh, trying my best to, to keep it a clean city. Uh, the, the, uh, what, what's your biggest challenge as mayor? Traffic. And uh, that's why I was uh, looking at the uh, Dallas uh, toll system here. It's a company uh, uh, run by S S Spanish people, uh, but it's a, it's a conglomerate. Uh, they, they built a $2 billion uh, 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 highway here on a toll system. And we want to do the same, not a two billion, but I'm doing it a 1.5 mile and uh, another one in two and a half miles, uh, hopefully to uh, get around the, the, the traffic congested areas. Uh, so uh, traffic is, is my main uh, issue now. The other interesting thing about Amman, of course, is your airline, uh, Royal Jordanian, because now you're expanding routes. Uh, you're flying to places you never flew before. And years ago, some very smart travelers who wanted to go to Israel realized the best place to do, the best way to do it was to fly to Oman and then go across the Allenby Bridge into Israel. First of all, you offered them a better airline deal, right? That's right. It was, it was, and they got to see two countries. Oh, the Israelis didn't like that at all. But the point is, you guys undercut them and you did a great job. But again, if you want to enter the, uh, the Holy Land, uh, whatever that Holy Land is, you have to enter from the east. <laughs> the sun rises from the east. So you, you land in Amman and then you go west into Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, uh, the Galilee, and, uh, and the rest. But um, uh, do you, do you, you asked me about my watch. Uh, I do. Well, yeah, you remember, remember, this, remember that story? I do remember that story. You and I were in China. Nanjing. In Nanjing, China. We were attending a conference and we both shared a car out to the airport. It was a very foggy day, which is a good thing, in the, in the, right? Very foggy day. And we're sitting there. Am I right? Absolutely. And the plane was delayed because it was so thick you couldn't even see out the window. And all of a sudden, you had showed me your watch. Tell the story of this watch. Uh, the watch is uh, a Cinier, is one of 36 watches at Cartier. And uh, was given to me by a friend in uh, 1984. So it's a charm. And uh, there's nothing like it. Two, two sapphires. Right. And, uh, and I all was of a sudden, reaching, uh, he reaches to... into his pocket and it's yeah. not there. Yeah. Akel, who's the calmest guy in the world, was not a happy guy. And, we, and, and we, ha we were making cell phone calls back to the hotel trying to get something. And guess what? Thank God for the fog because they found it and they came out to the airport and exactly. they gave it to you. Hilton. We yeah, have to the thank Hilton the Hilton and, organization. And then they did it. And uh, amazing story. And you still have the watch. And uh, the taxi driver was the happiest in Nanjing that day. He got 100 <laughs> bucks for it. <laughs> Yep. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's all about travel. 
and uh, how one could get to the manager and the manager get to the uh, uh, room service and room service and the timing and all. And, uh, you know, if and they move quickly. It wasn't like you had to fill out a form and call them back in two weeks. They, yeah. they got it. No time. You know, that's one of the things about Asia that you get very easily spoiled by because anything is possible. That's right. Anything is possible and it, has, and it happens quickly, which to me is like, you know, there's the old Groucho Marx line that you would never join a club that would have you as a member. And then you get to Asia and you realize they must be waiting for somebody else named Greenberg because why are they being so nice to me? And then you realize that's who they are. It has nothing to do with you. And they really did a great job that day. I was, I was, I was so thrilled for you because what a feeling of, of loss uh, because it was such an emotional and sentimental piece for you. And when you asked me yesterday about the watch, what did I tell you? You told me it's being repaired. It's being repaired. But you kept the, but you kept the chain. And I have the chain. <laughs> he does. He does. Now, though, when you fly to Oman, you can actually use Oman as a hub and overnight, a night, two nights, and then continue on on the same route network. Oh, that's the best thing that uh, can happen now. Uh, Oman is a hub, and then you can reach uh, Cairo, uh, the Gulf. Uh, in fact, you can even uh, backtrack to Istanbul if you want to. Uh, they're flying the uh, 787, the Dreamliners, uh, daily out of New York, daily out of Chicago, uh, four times out of uh, Canadian, uh, Montreal, and uh, Toronto. And uh, the, the flights out of Oman, like uh, on the hour, every hour to, to Cairo in particular. Uh, so it is, it is the hub in the, in the Middle East. Uh, what we look at Oman now, uh, Peter, is that it's going to be the launching pad for the reconstruction of the Middle East. You look around Iraq, Syria, uh, and, the, and, and the rest of the... All roads part. go through Amman. Amman is going to be the launching pad for that reconstruction. You just the, the, the conferences, the events that take place, the presidents and prime ministers and leaders that come in. And King Abdullah is, is, is really doing... A, your, your friend is doing a, a great job. And uh, I understand he's very popular here in, in, in the States. Very popular. Of course, as you know, he went to school here. He understands America better than most Americans. That's why he's such a good guy. He gets it. He totally gets it. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own? Bobbing about between my legs. Joining me now, he's become a regular on the show, an old buddy of mine who travels actually more than I do, hotel manager extraordinaire, hotel executive extraordinaire, Raymond Dixon. How are you, sir? Hi, Peter. You've been, com- you've been coming to this summit for a long time. Yeah, howdy, aloha, and namaste. You know, that's that's the area that I cover nowadays. So, yeah, nice to see you, Peter. Nice howdy. to be here. Oh, that's Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Let's get serious for a second, because... In the wake of the Paris shootings in November, in the wake of what's happened in Istanbul and Ankara, in the wake of what's happening in Brussels, some would argue, and by the way, statistically, they'd be right, that the incidence of this, the frequency of it, is increasing in terms of terrorist activity, aimed at innocent travelers. There's just no doubt about it. Um, And that's part of the deal. But in this case with Brussels at the airport and the metro station, you see almost an immediate drop-off in bookings. The real question is, are we smart enough as intelligent travelers to realize that we can bounce back from this and it shouldn't affect our travel plans? Well, I don't know if you can say that completely, Peter. I'd say that we are fortunate to be in the industry that we're in, travel and tourism, as we know that whether it's a natural event or an unnatural event of any kind of, of those proportions, that 
Travel and tourism has demonstrated over the years that it bounces back. And because of the global nature and the cyclicality, synchronicity of our businesses today, that I'd say that, yes, it does affect you. I think it's a short-term effect. The traveler today is a really a global, it's a global business, a global traveler. And it's, a, it's an accommodation that we need to uh, be as a traveler and also be as a supplier of, to make sure that our guests are uh, looked after in any given way, shape, or form. Right. It gets down to duty of care. But, but here's my question, because there's this, there's almost a conflict or a contradiction between security and freedom, between convenience and police state, right, in order to go from point A to point B. Well, hospitality and security aren't exactly compatible per se in that context because you're not going to a consulate or an embassy. You're going for a wedding, you're going for a function, you're going for a meal. And so it's not that type of, of security that one is one expects in a when you when you visit a hotel. Okay, actually. so I'm, I'll be devil's advocate here, okay? Uh, now you've had experiences in India, some pretty horrendous experiences at the Taj, the famous shootout there in, in 08. Uh, and if you were going to enter the... 9-11? Yeah, 9-11, of course, I know. But I'm talking about just what happened in, in, in Mumbai. If I were to check into the Taj Hotel today, I'd go through a metal detector. If I was going to... Right? That happened because of that, right? But how many hotels are proactively... They don't have to like make it a police state, but how many hotels are proactively installing uh, at least a visible security system to give people at least the peace of mind that they are being looked at? Yeah, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's really um, something that we have to um, uh, embrace. And I, I had been in a, a general manager in New York for 16 years during and 9-11 and 16 hours in the terrorist attack, in the terrorist attack in Bombay, as you know. Um, and so, you know, out of that comes a, a, a different way of the way we travel. I, I'd say look ten, at 10 years ago when you took up, when you took up, uh, when you came to the airport, um, and if they asked you to do those things 10 years ago, you'd be screaming at the top of your head. Today, you're stripped halfway down before you're even at the line. So it's a, it's a, I, I guess it's a, it's what travelers have to learn to do, and, right, and hotels uh, as well, actually. Right, and that, that's that's yeah. the point that I'm making. I mean, for example, and I'm not trying to give anybody the wrong idea, but it, it bothers me to no extent that there's not a bellman in the world that wouldn't take $5 to watch my bag without ever inspecting the bag. You know, that wouldn't happen at the airport, but we're, but the hotels become a soft target that way. And, and the hotels that I've talked to will tell me off the record, well, they don't want to institute any more security like that because they don't want to inconvenience their guests. And my argument to them is, I think a rather large explosion killing half your guests is a rather large inconvenience in and of itself. So let's talk about what we can do. I'll give you an example. Uh, you may remember when they blew up the Marine barracks in Saudi Arabia and all those guys died. Well, under a, under a military contract, there was a company that developed the most amazing thing, blast-proof wallpaper. Because people in those kinds of explosions don't get killed by the explosion, they get killed by the shards. Absolutely, right? yeah. So, so we watched them develop and then detonate this blast-proof wallpaper. And you see when they exploded the bomb, you see the wall just do this. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington.
you had that terrible incident in Mumbai and you reacted to the point where security became basically type I mean, point plan A, plan B and plan C, not to beat everybody over the head with it, but there's a visible security presence and and the hotels that you worked on, you had much better security. There's no doubt about it. And the proof of the pudding, of course, is that you haven't had an incident since. Right. I, I guess it's, a, it's, it's, it's both. It's visible and invisible. Right. I, I, I would say that if there, there are airports, for example, fly to Tel Aviv, you don't see anyone walking around with machine guns or sandbags with uh, someone standing guard. But I tell you, they're there. And similarly, I think that whether you have plain-closed ex-commandos like air marshals in your hotel that also exist uh, today. And, and these are things which are there, but not there. And so you need to have that presence at the same time. But, you know, there's a, there's a difference between a subtle presence and a presence that's in your face. So, for example, you mentioned the air marshals. I have to tell you, I have an issue with that. I have a real issue with that. Air marshals always sit in 3B. They all wear their Dockers pants and they're and they're reading their Jim their their Tom Clancy novel and they're trying to blend. Guys, everybody knows who you are. And they sit in 3B, right? I understand why. Nobody wants to be in a window seat, they need to be able to get out right away. And there's one guy maybe in coach on selected flights. Emphasis on the words selected flights. They're not on every flight. If you truly want to make a statement about air marshals being on a plane, why not put them in uniform in the jump seat at the cockpit facing the passengers? That's it. Send the message that you want to send, and then everybody enjoys their flight. But no, they're playing a Clint Eastwood game of, are you feeling lucky today? Because they might be on the plane, they might not be on the plane. And I do not know yet. And if anybody's listening to the show and wants to argue the point, the number is 888-887-3837. I do not know yet of any incident yet since 9-11 where an air marshal has actually thwarted an attempt. Peter, that's something that probably you would have a better idea than I would. And you'd probably want that to be more on the soft side rather than make it a make it a point that yes. that that happened. But but I, but I agree with you. I think though it's. I mean, but just think about what an yeah. air marshal does. Yeah. Your plane is either secure or it's not. The cockpit door is either locked or it's not. If you have an air marshal on a plane, you're letting people know you're still worried about the security on that plane. Correct. Absolutely. So they either got through security or they didn't before they ever got to the plane. Which one is it, guys? And when you see the failure rate of the TSA, 97% failure rate in detecting weapons. You know what a 97% failure rate would be in my, in my case? End of a career. These guys still have jobs. I think the great thing about it is that you have three airline CEOs on your show today or tomorrow. And so I think that would be a really interesting question to post to that. And you know what? I'm going to tell you exactly what they're going to tell me. It's not our job. It's the government's job. They're, they're, all, they're going to dodge that question like they're going to dodge the bullet. But sometimes you just can't dodge the bullet. Yeah, cer- certainly I, I understand that. I think from the hospitality side that the international players that play in different uh, regions, they do take security seriously. I think that they're really, uh, but I, I say bigger companies probably have that opportunity and the bandwidth and as well as the ability to do that. And you're right. The bigger companies do. And most of those bigger companies, I'm not seeing them do it yet. And, and if, if I were like a financial speculator, right, I would be investing in metal detector futures because all you need is one incident in the American country of the United States of America in a major American city where someone basically gets inside a hotel and does what happened in, in Brussels. And within 24 hours, every hotel will have metal detectors. Every hotel will have visible security. The question is, why don't they have it now? Yeah, well, I, I think we've seen um, numerous 
areas of, of that in emerging markets, you know, in the sub-Saharan continent. Oh, sure. Um, obviously, in uh, uh, certain countries close to the, the action zones, because those are, again, softer, easier targets to, to, yeah. to, to go for, unfortunately. And in those regions, it, it's, it's part of doing business. Oh, listen, if you're yeah. an American-branded hotel in Jakarta, you have a metal detector. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. The Four Seasons in Cairo has a metal detector. Yeah. I get it. Now, is the metal detector plugged in? I don't know. Is the medical? You know, I mean, they have the machine is sitting there, but I don't know. But at least we have the. Te- I mean, I don't think there's any argument that we have the technology to make it work. Um, you know, there was a there was a an old the first Terminator movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they're walking through a, a, a wall, and it's it's a giant. You know, that technology exists today. It it does exist. So yeah, you're right. It's an investment that yes. we as a as an industry have to take seriously and, 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 and do. Well, listen, when the accountants run the asylum, everybody goes crazy. So for me, it's not a question of how much it costs. It's really a, a long-term view about how much it's worth. Yeah. And you know, when a hotel says, we don't want to spend the money on security right now the way you want it because we don't want to inconvenience our guests, one explosion in the lobby is going to be an exponential factor of what that investment was going to be. It's a you know, it's a uh, it's part of doing business uh, business today globally, right? Uh, and the question uh, is, who wants to step up to the plate and actually do it? Correct, yeah. proactively, right, right? So anybody who's listening to this show, who's in the hotel business, who wants to take the opposite side view, I'm all ears. But you know what? I bet you can't make the argument. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.